Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm Nick Carman, your host. And once more, I am on my international travels. So this evening, I'm sat with Tom O'Brien, founding partner, managing director for HYM Investment Group in Boston, Massachusetts. Prior to HYM, Tom served as a managing partner for JPI, a national developer and owner of multifamily communities, and managing director in Boston and New York for Tishman's. And Tom also led the Boston Redevelopment Authority as its director and chief of staff, overseeing the development of over 12 million square foot of projects in Boston from 94 to 2000. So Tom, thank you very, very much for joining me. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here with you. Well, so let's get on with it. Tell us how, to, how chapter one begins, please, Tom. Sure. Um, so I'd, I'd probably begin chapter one in 1985 when I graduated from college. I went to Brown University uh, in Providence, Rhode Island and played football there. And uh, I had been a history major, loved to read uh, still history, biographies, read about politics, things like that. But a group of guys that I had played football with were going to New York as a Bostonian at that time in particular, if to your audience hopefully knows a little bit about the long history between the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. So, you know, as a Bostonian, there, there was a, a curiosity, but perhaps not a love of New York. But I, I thought it was a really interesting time uh, in my life to go to New York. So I moved to New York. I had gotten a job with AIG, the American International Group, which at the time was a huge conglomerate, financial conglomerate, insurance conglomerate with operations all over the world. But they were headquartered at 70 Pine Street in uh, downtown New York in the old, what I would call the old Wall Street. And we lived first in Hoboken, New Jersey, and then moved to Manhattan, lived on the Upper East Side. We had four guys in a two-bedroom apartment, um, and I'd get up early in the morning and go to work at 70 Pine Street, which is one block over from Wall Street, and I loved it. Um, I had to learn from the very beginning just the basics of how to operate in a business environment. I I didn't even really know how to speak to a, a person in a business environment on the phone. I didn't really know how to run a meeting. I didn't know how to, you know, do a bunch of different things like that, just the basics. And uh, I learned a lot. It was an executive training program. Uh, I love being in New York. uh, And I really discovered a lot about New York. We would explore all over the city. And uh, I still have a a good comfort in New York uh, and an affinity for New York really as a result of that that period of time. So I spent about two years in New York. I had a uh, an old uh, relationship with someone, a woman I had gone to college with. And so I kind of wanted to come back to Boston. So after a few years, I came back to Boston and, uh, and decided to do something totally different with my career. I quit my job. And, and because of my love of politics and history and government, I joined a political campaign and, and um, worked for a guy named Mike Dukakis, who was running for president at the time. He became the Democratic nominee for president in 1988. And it gave me a chance to go all over the country. I went to, you know, spent a significant time in Pennsylvania and other early states for uh, primaries, um, worked as part of that campaign, learned a, a tremendous amount about political campaigning and what it takes to win and all those things. We lost, <laughs> unfortunately. So I came back to Boston and decided that, um, you know, really what might, might be interesting is if I'm going to be in this career, what I really loved was working at the intersection of government and politics and and being in a position where I could impact the city where I grew up uh, and the love uh, that I had for the city. So I decided I should go to law school at night. 
and I found a job working for a state agency that made loans to small businesses. So this is, you know, 1989, I enrolled in law school at night. It takes four years to go to law school at night here in the States. Uh, so I completed that in 1993. And that's probably when my next chapter begins. So I should pause, I guess, here, Nick, and see if I'm heading on the right path for you. I think you're definitely heading the right path. and You're doing a really, really good job. And I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this story, sitting back and, um, uh, and hearing <laughs> it. So please carry on. Okay. Well, in 1993, uh, a couple of significant things in my life happened. One was um, a friend of mine um, suggested that I go out on a blind date. The, the relationship for, you know, for, for which I had come back to Boston had not worked out. And uh, so I was, uh, uh, I guess I would, I would uh, kindly to myself say that I, I was an available person. Um, so, so the, uh, so a you know, friend of mine said, I mean, this is the, the, not very much luck so far, Tom here. Uh, yeah. Sort of, uh, sort of the good thing for radio. I mean, yeah, this is exactly. all radio. Poli- no picture. Poli- this yeah. is good. <laughs> so the, um, so uh, a friend of mine is actually, you'll, you'll enjoy this story. The, um, his wife had been away on kind of a women's weekend away and they were on the beach and, and they were, you know, some were reading magazines, some were reading just, you know, small books. And this person, this particular woman was reading uh, one of the section of, of the biographies of Winston Churchill called the last line. I, I don't know. There's a, it's a three part set, as you may know, uh, by William Manchester. And uh, she was reading it on the beach. And so one of the women who happened to be married to this friend of mine said, geez, I got a guy you got to meet. You got to meet Tom O'Brien. And uh, so they set us up on a blind date and uh, her name was Trisha Joyce. She was born on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. She came from a family of eight uh, here in greater Boston. And uh, and we uh, fell into a wonderful relationship right in the very beginning. We met in the fall of 91 and we were married on January 2nd, 1993. So, you know, that new chapter, that next chapter for me in 93 kind of begins with uh, me getting married to to Trisha, uh, she and I just celebrated, by the way, our thirtieth uh, wedding anniversary. For those listeners who are, who are doing the math here, uh, on January second, uh, two thousand twenty three, and um, at the same time, too, my older brother John, I guess we in our family were kind of bitten by this bug. Generally, my older brother John had run for state senate, so in nineteen ninety three, I graduated from law school. Uh, I was the campaign manager for my brother of Victoria's campaign. We finally won a campaign. And so he became a, a state senator here in Massachusetts. And I, at the same time, had met um, a city councilor uh, in Boston. His name was Tom Menino. Um, and uh, he had uh, become mayor. There was a, a, a twist of a number of different pieces of faith that, that helped him become mayor. And he became mayor in 1993. And he needed um, a young person who knew a little bit about Boston and cared about uh, economic development and cared about the city to be the chief of staff at the Boston Redevelopment Authority. Uh, The Boston Redevelopment Authority is a unique agency here in Boston, really different than most other cities, in that all of the economic development and planning functions for the city are concentrated in one agency. It's a powerful agency with a pretty high profile in Boston. So I became the chief of staff. I was uh, 29 years old in the, in the beginning of 93, turned 30, I guess, that year, and then uh, eventually became the director uh, within a couple of years of that. And so I was the director of the Boston Redevelopment Authority for that period of time. I loved it. Had a great time. I was young and kind of headstrong and had a vision for Boston that you know, I thought was inclusive and, um, and really wanted to make things happen from a housing perspective as well. 
and I was also kind of a, a fairly public figure. And I learned pretty, you know, unfortunately after this whole episode, I did this job for a couple of years, that there can only be really one mayor in one city at one time, particularly a mayor like Tom Menino, who was very strong-willed and cared deeply about making sure that there were, you know, nobody else, no doubt that he was the mayor. So we ended up sort of, you know, clashing sometimes publicly, which I, I was kind of foolish, honestly, in terms of uh, I should have managed that relationship better. But in any event, um, so I, I left that job at the very end of 99, uh, and then my next chapter begins. So I should pause again, I guess, uh, Nick, to see if I'm on, still on the right path for you. You're on. You're on. I, I, uh, we are definitely on the right path. But I do, I do worry for our, you know, for our, our listeners who aren't familiar with, with Boston or, partic- or particularly what was going on at, on at this time. I do not want to let you off the hook quite so easily because this role at the Boston um, Redevelopment Authority is is a massive job, isn't it? Um, Correct. And to put a bit of context, I got to speak to someone who knew you at that, at that time, and I asked them what were their first impressions uh, of Tom in the uh, in the late nineties. Uh, what what do you think I'm going to say? Oh boy! Um, so I I think he's probably going to say that I was an earnest hard-working person who spread himself too thin. I tried to be everywhere, I think. All right. well, let's, see. think? let's see. So this is what they say. Tom had both a very powerful but also very approachable persona. Being the head of the BRA was one of the most prominent jobs in all of Boston, but you would never know that he'd got that because of how easy and how genuine he always was in any of our interactions. That's nice. That's very nice. Well, that's kind. Nice. Thank you. It is nice. Uh, I but I think it. I think this yeah you know, this 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 gives us an idea as, as to as to why we haven't even spoken about things like the seaport. Mm. Well, that's where I was going to head. If you're so that at that time in Boston, so you got to remember Boston as a city. You know, we're a northeastern city. Um, I think what your listeners would clearly recognize about Boston is we're a we're a university town. We're a, a town that's about uh, hospitals and medical and education and things like that. But we're also a town with a long history of a lot of unresolved issues. It's a real chip on its shoulder, right? Yes, yeah. You know, particularly with regard to to race and you know, sort of who we are. What is our identity? It's a it's um, it's a fascinating history to really pull apart and think about. And a lot of those issues sort of were coming into direct play at that time. So remember, in 1993. Boston was still feeling the, the effects of a, what was a very difficult recession in the U.S. So, you know, the stock market crashed in 1989. The U.S. was plunged into a bit of a recession. The president at that time was Ronald Reagan. But we, you know, most people think of us as being a little bit more of a progressive city. Ted Kennedy was our senator. And the congressional delegation was a fairly progressive uh, congressional delegation. And, and so during the course of that recession, one of the things that one of the key projects uh, that had been conceptualized by the con- congressional delegation really advanced was the idea of the, what's called the big dig, where we we had a uh, a ribbon of a really ugly, noisy, elevated highway that ran right right through our downtown and divided our downtown from uh, from the waterfront, and it was a relic of urban renewal from the fifties and sixties. Uh, and the idea was to build a tunnel underneath that elevated highway while the highway continued to operate. And then once the tunnel was completed, build parkland on top of the old space and uh, and do all that, you know, within a, a defined period of time and hopefully under a defined cost. Now, you know, 
when I was there, the big dig was well underway, but it was, we were so deep into it at this point, there was no way, no turning back. So in other words, you know, for a big public project like this, I, I suppose in the early days, there are questions of whether or not people would uh, rise up and sort of abandon it because of costs or schedule or difficulty getting it done or that sort of thing. But at this point we were into it and there was, you know, certainly every confidence that it was going to get done. I don't think anybody knew what the final price tag would be. So the big thing, you know, was delivered. It was not actually completed until about, I guess, 2004, maybe something like that. But the big piece of that, which is not really focused upon by people outside of Boston is in addition to taking the highway down in downtown Boston, which created all this beautiful parkland, also the Massachusetts Turnpike, which is the main east-west thoroughfare highway in you know, Boston that connects through Boston, that came to an abrupt end at the, the space where this highway was to be built. And, uh, and the, uh, that was extended through under the what's called the Fort Point Channel, which is part of Boston Harbor and created what is now the seaport. You know, for the first time, this area uh, of the seaport became connected into the broader transportation network, and there was a direct connection through that to the airport. Um, so it completely changed Boston. And this whole project in the end cost, I think, $15 billion or something like that. Um, but a good chunk of it was paid for by the federal government, um, and it completely changed the city of, city of Boston in an amazing way. So our job at that time was to begin to think about the planning and what would happen in these neighborhoods. And just to give you an evidence of what was happening then, I this is partly where I clashed with Tom and, and And please, hopefully your listeners understand, I, 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 I learned a lot from Tom and, Eno, and he was a mentor for me. And quite frankly, I wouldn't have had this job if it weren't for him. He believed in me at the time he gave me the job and all those things. But just to give you a sense of what we clashed over, so... At that time, the um, the district city councilor for the area that included the seaport, but really includes the community of South Boston, he you know really was a person who was from you know South Boston. He had grown up in South Boston, had lived there his whole life. I think he had participated in in some of the anti-busing activity that had happened in the early 1970s. Had a reputation, honestly, as a person who who, you know, might not have, you know, been as inclusive and as and as open and willing to participate in a diverse environment. I'm trying to be politically appropriate here and be as kind as I can to a person. He's now, he's no longer living, so I'm trying to be kind to him. But, you know, he and I clashed a lot. Um, and my vision for the seaport was to call it the seaport. His vision for the seaport was to call it the South Boston waterfront so that it would become part of South Boston. My vision for the seaport was that we would have, you know, 8,000 or 10,000 units of housing there, that we would make it a place that would be open and available to all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. His vision was that it would be very few housing units. There would only be offices. He didn't want new people moving into that neighborhood and changing his neighborhood. Um, You can imagine what he meant by new people. He didn't want new people moving into his neighborhood. Unfortunately, you know, Mayor Benino, whose instincts were very progressive on just about everything, you know, kind of sided with, with Jimmy Kelly. And that's partly what created a, a challenge for me. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. If a person flies into Logan Airport and drives through what is now called the Ted Williams Tunnel, which is the extension of the Mass Pike that runs through the seaport, the sign there, which was prepared at that time by, you know, the Federal Highway Department, the sign says um, South Boston Waterfront. So to a certain extent, Jimmy Kelly 
you know, one in that element of it with Menino's support to say South Boston Waterfront. But you and I and everybody else in the world still calls it the seaport, which is really what it is because the developers, you know, have made it that way. So it just gives you a sense of where I was and when I was, what I tried to do. And again, I think if I had managed my relationship better with Menino, he probably would have sided with me. I, I just became more public and more headstrong and decided I, I thought I knew what was best. And instead of building a really strong coalition with the mayor, I just kept trying to hammer away at the public, which was probably why I ended up leaving that job. You've told, you've told that, st that story incredibly well, sort of Tom. And, but I, 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 don't think, I, I, think, I don't think I've ever told that story to anybody but my wife in 30 years, so uh, 25 years, whatever it is. So. Well, I, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And you've, you've told that very, very well. What, what, I, what I think we've, you know, we've glossed over here was that the guy who's got this big job, right, is 29 years old. Well, at that time, I was probably 30. Uh, when this was all going on, this was 97, 96. I mean, 97, 98 at this point. So at that point, I was 30, how old would I be? 34, 30, yeah, 34, I guess 35. But a young man, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, which was part of the rap on me, honestly, that that people were, you know, what I allowed happen was the press and others would be, hey, here's a young guy, he's, you know, he's out there, he's leaving this agency, he's doing this stuff. What's his future? What could he be? Could he be, you know, could he be a mayor? Could he be something, you know, could he be, and I allowed that to be speculated and, and that rubbed Menino, as you would imagine, the wrong way. What would you say is the most important lesson you learned at that time? Uh, be a, it's really, it's much more in keeping with my personality to be a better coalition builder, to do a better job of managing that relationship. If I had managed that relationship with him, rather than getting headstrong and sort of saying, hey, I'm right, and so I'm just going to, you know, almost exist in a bunker here and just keep, you know, keep doing what I think I'm doing without regard to trying to build a bridge to the mayor, you know, that just, it was a, a recipe for failure. So building coalitions, being a, a, a stronger communicator, being a better uh, team player within that administration was the most important lesson I learned from that. All right then. Well, let's carry on. I love to sort of write these stories into, into chapters. You know, I, t I typically say, right, well, when was the period you're learning? When's the period you're consolidating? You know, what's the catalyst? Right now, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I've I've heard a break from uh, when Tom's learning has stopped yet. Um, uh, but Life is, that, is about learning. Life yeah, is about learning. <laughs> for, yeah, for a, look, a lucky few, they can extend that period longer than others. Mm -hmm. So tell us, if, you know, we're getting to a catalyst point, right? Things mm -hmm. things are changing. Tell us tell us how they change and why. So when I left the BRA, and I won't go into that whole story, it was a it was a really difficult time for me. So my wife and I, you know, uh, we at that time we have. I suppose I need to tell about my my family too, which is a really which is a central part of, of who we are. So my wife, the former Trisha Joyce, now Trisha O'Brien, we built our family through adoption. Um, so we have um, five children who are adopted. Our our son Lucas, all our kids were born outside the U.S. So our son Lucas uh, is from Bogota, Colombia. He was born in 1995. Nina is from Guatemala. She was born in '97. And Tomas is from Ecuador. Uh, he was born in 99. So we had three children at the time I left. I, Menino gave me a, a small severance. Uh, I think it was like a three-month severance um, when I left. And uh, my wife looked at me. You know, she had like the yellow legal pad out. She's going through the budget. And she said, well, if you get a job within a month, then we'll have enough money to adopt a fourth child. And um, 
So I did get a job within a month, which I'll tell you about in a second. And, um, and we used that money to adopt a fourth child, Marisol. And Marisol was born in Guatemala in 2000, in April of 2000. So I had, with regard to the job, I, I had met this other really young uh, star, this really smart guy named Rob Spire uh, when I was at the BRA. And when I left the BRA, Rob was kind enough to sort of remember that we had met. And uh, he contacted me and he said, um, hey, you know, would you ever consider, you know, joining our company? And so I flew to New York. I met Rob, met his dad, Jerry Spire, met a, a series of people there. Very just an amazing company, an amazing family, amazing group of people. And uh, and so in that year, we adopted Marisol and uh, I started a job in New York. So I, here I was back in New York, although we lived here in Boston. And so I would get up on Monday mornings and uh, fly to New York. Tishman Spire at that time had just completed a, an apartment building on the west side. So they kind of gave me a studio apartment. So I would I would live there for the week and then fly back on Friday get to work on some really great projects for them in a variety of different places, you know, uh, all around the country, learned a lot about how to raise capital, how to think about managing large projects, all of those things. And, uh, and also too, for my wife and I, we had four children all under the age of five um, at that point, uh, Lucas, Nina, Tomas, and Marisol. At one point, Jerry Spire kind of came to me and he said, um, he said, you know, Tom, here you are, you're getting on the plane, you're coming down to, to New York. He said, I've always wanted to have a presence in Boston, but we've never really had the right person to help us, you know, develop a presence in Boston. Why aren't we, you know, using you in Boston? I said, well, I have this, you know, this thing with Tom Manino and I, I really haven't fixed it yet. And, and he looked at me, so we'll, we'll fix it. And so I, uh, I called the mayor who couldn't have been more gracious and uh, I met with him, had lunch with him. His, you know, his team around him, I just have to call out a guy named Mike Kenebi, who was one of the mayor's senior staff people who really helped me, you know, rebuild the original relationship. When I first went to work for Tom Manino in 93, I was kind of, you know, here I was 29 years old. I was sort of one of his kids. And, and uh, so I rebuilt that relationship, which I'm really happy about because Tom Manino died at a, a young age um, in 2013, I think it was, or 2014. And uh so I, you know, rebuilding that relationship with him was was important and uh, an important part of you know, my life. So I came back to Boston. We'd lived here the whole time. So I just basically, I guess, I got off the, I got off a plane. I, I didn't have to be on a plane as much, and um, uh, it started a, a Tishman Spire office here in Boston. We uh, bought one twenty five High Street. We bought uh, one Federal. These are all addresses that are local here, <clears throat> and um, and I really learned a lot with those guys. And then um, I kind of got it in my head that, geez, I'd, I'd like to do this for myself. I'd, I'd like to kind of start my own company. You know, could I do something similar to what Rob created and, and Jerry created? You know, you think of Jerry's history. He should be one of your podcast people if you could get him to, to how he created his company in the late 70s and 80s. You know, I said to myself, could I do that? And I had a, a group that seemed to want to do that with me. It was a little bit of a false start because I think they and myself, we really didn't think through enough of the, you know, how we wanted to set this up. And so, uh, but I, in any event, I left Tishman Spire to, to, to do that and ended up eventually with JPI, as you said in the introduction, I, uh, JPI was founded by a really great group of, of uh, people in Texas and they were at a point in their lives where they sort of wanted to evergreen the company to a group of execs who they would establish around the country. And I, would be their person in the Northeast. Um, so it kind of gave me the chance to kind of form a company 
off of the, you know, my relationship and friendship with those folks. And then I'm about to finish this chapter next. So I'm giving you a fair warning here. Um, then in uh, 2008, two uh, things happened. One, you know, they're, they're not even on the same planet in terms of how they, where they match up. But one was um, our Marisol, who had been diagnosed with a neurological disorder in 2003. So she'd come home to us in 2000, amazing, fun, energetic kid. Uh, in 2003, it was clear that there were some gross motor issues. My wife, you know, certainly identified this first before any doctors or anybody. Uh, so she was um, diagnosed in 2003 with something called leukodystrophy, which is a, a terrible disease that affects the myelin, which is the insulation around the nerve cells. It's the myelin sheath uh, of uh, every person. Uh, so after a long period of seizures and all kinds of difficulty, uh, she died in December, on December 20th, uh, 2008. Uh, at the same time that happened, the the recession, you know, grabbed hold of the U.S. And so JPI really was adversely affected. So by the summer of 2009, we had lost a child. We were in a really difficult spot as a family. And I, you know, honestly, basically didn't have a job in the summer of 2009. So that is the end of that chapter and the beginning of the next one, which I'll pause again, Nick, and see if this is a good spot to do that. So I've got two questions on this. One, why do you why do you think you wanted to set something up on your own? What was why? I think at that time my feeling was that to be successful within the that that company, I had to be kind of part of the New York group. And because I was in Boston, I wasn't part of that group. But even more importantly, I was kind of you know, I had learned a lot at that point. And what I realized was that there was a lot of capital, a ton of institutional capital that wanted to be in, invested in Boston. And they were looking for people who had the experience and the ability to deliver for them in Boston. And I believed I could be that person. And I believed I could build a company that could do that. So I, I had that in my head. And then the next question um uh, is is given what you what you very sensitively sort of described about about that that loss in in oh eight and oh nine how do you pick yourself back up how do, you know, how does how does that not sap all that career energy you've been built you've been building up yeah it was i look back on that time Nick, that's a really good question because I, I think some of your listeners probably go through you know difficult times and and a friend of mine you know, because I had lost my job, we, we nearly lost our house at that time. So a friend of mine called me and he, he said, you know, it's a really good friend who's a, a, a lawyer in town, who's a very direct person. And he said, you know, he said, I'm going to say something to you as a friend. He said, I'm just going to tell you this. He said, you understand how screwed up your life is right now. Do you, do you understand like how difficult your life is? And I, and I was kind of, I'm looking at him and he said, you know, you, you lost your job, you lost a child, you almost lost your house, you're you know, these are like three of the worst things that can happen to somebody. And they all happened to you within like six months. Um, and uh, and I, I looked at him and I said, well, my personality, which is largely built, honestly, in the way I grew up and my family and my parents and athletics and things like that, is get up the next day and work harder. And so at that period of time, you know, I had a history. I, I'm a uh, kind of everyday runner or exercise person. So I, I get up early every day and I'm a and I ran for a long time. For 35 years, I ran every day. Over time, it you know it takes a toll on your knees and your back and all that stuff. So I've tried to now be more on a stationary bike or 
just do different things. But I, I still am a 5 a.m. exercise person. And during that period of time, I would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I still would get up. Even if I didn't have a job, I'd get up. We were all, you know, tie and suit people then. Remember, right? This is yeah. before all this period of time. So I'd put a tie and suit on, and I'd still come downtown. And I'd have meetings with people. I'd have appointments with people. I'd, I'd go to see people. You know, I, I probably, I'm sure there were a lot of people who looked at me and said, geez, you know, after I left the meeting, the meeting, I'm sure they felt badly for me. But I, I was pretty relentless of just getting up every day, doing my exercise routine, trying to take care of my wife, trying to take care of my kids, and just keep going. You have to, you, you cannot, you can't allow yourself to kind of drop into a funk and, you know, whatever, stay at home or whatever. You got to get up. You got to, you know, stay in shape and you got to get going. It's, it's my view. You know, you cannot let difficulties get you down. You got to get up and get going. Okay. So where does this lead us to? Where does, where does that, where does that relentless sort of work ethic, where does this, where does this lead us to? So I, we also are, my wife and I are people of faith as well. So we're, we're sort of, um, we're part of the progressive wing of the Catholic church, I guess is what I'd say. I, I, uh, you know, where the, the Catholic church is divided, I think, into people who care deeply about the rules and there are people who care deeply about service to others. And we're in that category of service to others. And, uh, so I think a lot of, you know, things that have happened to us have uh, a sense of, you know, being part of an opportunity for us to find people and, and perhaps our faith leading us into situations that, as you look back on it in retrospect, were sort of meant to be. So when I was at JPI, which I sort of ended up at JPI, I met uh, two guys, uh, Doug Nans and, and Paul Crisale, and we worked together at JPI, two terrific people. And all three of us have different personalities. We're all, each of us are people who care about our faith and very strong family people. But I'd say, and we're all uh, very progressive, I think, in terms of our view of politics in the world and things like that. But we also have uh, three very different sets of skills. So, so Paul is an engineer by training, uh, grew up in Brooklyn, New York, very much leads his life by thinking through schedules, budgets, how to deliver on projects. So, so Paul's sort of our partner in charge of operations and delivering buildings um, and has a great mind for that. Doug is a developer in every sense of the word in terms of the formal sense of training and being prepared for it. So uh, Doug grew up in Connecticut, went to Cornell, also, you know, kind of was an athlete in, in high school to a certain extent at Cornell, and then went to the Harvard uh, School of Design. So was trained as an architect and a planner but escaped that field to be a developer and really has a really strong sense of how to, you know, financially analyze a project, think through a, a project, the permitting schedule for project, all those things. And my job is to kind of be the person who manages relationships, uh, raises capital, thinks about new projects, thinks about the permitting of projects and the planning of projects. I'm sort of the outside person, I guess, is the way to think about it. And all three of us decided in that summer of 2009 to form a company together. I, I think those two sort of were sort of looking at me to say, you know, if we're going to form this company, we need to find deals. We need to find projects. So O'Brien, if you can find projects, then we'll join you, I think was their attitude. And um, so, you know, I was fortunate in that at that period of time, just given the bad economy, there were a number of broken projects along the landscape in Boston. And so I went after them and, you know, it's interesting not to, harp on Tish and Spire again at the time, because again, I have a deep respect for the company, but 
you know, one of the things that had happened was uh, there was a, a huge multi-billion dollar residential project in New York on the Lower East Side that, you know, that had, had proved to be, you know, really not a, a good result for, you know, for the company. And when I looked at that, the amount of capital that was lost among institutional investors, I sort of said, okay, I think what's going to what's going to happen next is the institutional investors are going to want to find their way past the middlemen of large companies that aggregate capital nationally or internationally, and find a direct person who's local who knows how to execute these projects and knows how to get these things done. And and so we we determined that we would be that local project that local group in Boston. They were kind enough, uh, Doug and Paul were to let me sort of name the company. So I came home one day, I had this name in mind, you know, with my wife and, um, and she looked at me and she said, that's a really dumb name. And I, I said, well, I said, well, why? I said, it sounds strong. It sounds impressive. It sounds all these things. And she looked at me and she said, why don't you make it personal to you? And so I walked away grumbling and came back and, and our Marisol, remember who had died in 2008 when she first had become sick, she, um, her words would get garbled and she would look at me and she would say, um, hold you me, daddy was her phrase. And she would put her arms extended, hold you me. So we're the HYM investment group, which stands for hold you me, this little girl, you know, who died. And, uh, and it's, and since that period of time, we've grown into being one of the largest development companies in, in Boston, uh, working on, you know, multiple billions of billions of dollars of projects. We built a team, of 44 people that is, uh, is reflects the diversity of Boston. We're uh, 50% women and 35% people of color. Uh, we work on a variety of different really complicated uh, projects. And honestly, it's been a lot of fun and very interesting. And there was me thinking HOM you know, or, or him was a real sort of masculine sort of name. <laughs> and I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't have been more wrong. Could I, that is, that's incredibly touching. So that's, that's incredibly my favorite. Touching. Part of all of this is, you know, I'll go to, as you can imagine, in Boston, there'll be, you know, there'll be, um, there'll be events, real estate events, and they'll, and the brokers will put up, okay, here's what's going on in town, and HYM is doing this, and HYM is doing that, and and I'll sit back and look at it, and because very few people know, I, again, I don't really talk about this very much, so very few people know that HYM just stands for that. That's really what it is. It's no, there's no secret to it. There's no initials. There's no masculine thing. As you say, it's just, it is what it is. It's a little girl who impacted my life and a lot of other people's lives. Now in my, in my research, I got to talk to one of the guys um, who you set HYM um, up with at that time. And, and he, he tells this really sort of, uh, I bet it wasn't funny at the time, but this really sort of, this sort of funny sort of the way things worked out. The three of you had, had not long been working together at JPI, had you? And all three of you had just taken turns in making each other redundant. Correct. Whilst, whilst Correct. you close these things down. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also sort of tells that story, you know, with, you know with, with this real sort of love and sort of admiration for in terms of sort of what you did for their, their families. Yeah. What I want to ask about was the drive, right? You're, you're, you know, you're once more, you're down on your look in terms of where things haven't haven't quite worked out, but the three of you have have decided to to get back together and give and give this another another go. What drives you then? I mean, maybe I'm sort of adding my own filter here in my, my own sort of real petty way. Is it about giving two fingers up to someone where it hasn't worked out? It's a little bit of that, a little bit of competition. Honestly, you know, I, I think the the more we, I, I'm I'm just going to say it this way. I I think 
you know, I look around, there's a lot of companies that have bigger names than us, have longer histories and things like that. But I, every time I'm with them in the room on different projects, I kind of look at them and say, geez, we're as good or better than those guys, you know? And so, you know, I, I, I think it's easy for people to get a little nervous. Well, you know, I'm up against, you know, pick the name of a company, you know, we, again, I'll, oh boy, I don't want to get myself sideways with Rob on these things, but the, you know, we competed Harvard, has had a long process of trying to figure out they, they own hundreds of acres of land in, in Austin. Uh, your listeners may not truly understand Harvard's located in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is a different municipality than Boston. So not in Boston, but years ago, Harvard started to assemble secretly land in Boston because Cambridge had shut them down in terms of further development. So they knew they needed to expand. So they bought hundreds of acres in, uh, in Boston, in the Alston neighborhood, and it's been a long process and, you know, uh, kind of fits and starts and not always successful. But about two years ago, three years ago, Harvard had a process to select a development partner. And, you know, our HYM, which started from nothing, became one of the finalists up against uh, Tishman Spire. And so it was, it was, you know, us to a certain extent against my, my old friend Rob um, Spire. And uh, it was a good competition. It was great. They ended up being selected. But I'm the thing I'm, you know, sort of the point I'm trying to make at this point in, the, in this call is here we were suddenly competing against one of the largest, most important development companies in the world. And I, I kind of looked at it and said, well, why not us? Of course, we're as good as, as those folks. And so I think that's partly what drove us is competition and a sense of, yes, we can do this. Um, so. So given that competition, given that drive you've got and, and also an incredible sort of self-beliefs, I'm, Let's let's jump to to the present day. Tell us where is where has this got you to? So we have now a number of things that are on our uh, on our plate. One is I, I look out my window here at a project that we have underway. There's a large garage that dominates downtown Boston that was built in the '60s. It was a one of the mistakes of a urban renewal. It's a uh, it's a nine story huge above grade garage right near city hall that covers five acres and so we've great partners on this uh, national uh, real estate advisors which is a washington dc based advisor to the electrical workers pension fund uh car which is a, a great uh REIT that's also based in dc with a wonderful history of office creation uh and a number of other partners as well on this but uh we are in a multi-phase redevelopment to uh, build a million square foot office tower, which delivers this year. The office tower is fully leased. Uh, so State Street Bank will move its headquarters to this building. Uh, and a company uh, called Intersystems from Cambridge is moving here. Uh, and then KL Gates, a law firm, will move uh, their headquarters to this building as well. All of that will be achieved this year. We have a residential building, uh, 368 apartments and 55 condominiums on top that is fully leased with a waiting list. Very successful. We're demolishing a portion of the garage, and then we'll create a 500,000-square-foot life science building and then a 300-unit residential project uh, there as well. So two more buildings to go. We're the owners of Suffolk Downs, which is a uh, an old horse racing track uh, in Boston, 161 acres. We've permitted that for 16 million square feet. So what that means is uh, it's 10,000 units of housing and 5 million square feet of commercial space. It's right near uh, Boston's Logan Airport in the ocean and all of that. So we're blessed. It's 161 acres directly located on two MBTA stops. And when we're done, it'll be the home of 
probably 15,000 people and maybe 25,000 people will go to work there every day. So it's like a small, mid-sized Massachusetts town, I guess. Uh, so we're underway in that. We also are about to receive the designation for an eight and a half acre parcel in Roxbury, uh, we hope, that um, uh, is a uh, wonderful project that will help us create life science uh, as a cluster in the community of Roxbury uh, and create home ownership for a community that has been left out of home ownership opportunities for generations. Um, and we have great partners on that uh, with uh, Reverend Jeffrey Brown of the 12th Baptist Church and a variety of other entrepreneurs as well. So we've got a lot of really interesting activity uh, right now. I'm nervous about the macro economy uh, in, you know, in the U.S. and uh, in, in the world, but but in general, we've built a company that we think can survive whatever's coming this year in terms of the macro economy and keep thriving. And and who I mean, who could doubt you? So I, I, no. I don't believe anyone believes that the the economy can you know can possibly sort of dent what you've what you've going on in terms of what you've been able to achieve so far. Thank you. Well, let's listen. Let's change the pace a little bit. All right. Mm-hmm. Are you, I've I've been thoroughly enjoying sitting back listening to this story now, but so. Uh, let me ask you a couple of sort of shorter, sharper questions. What do you think is your greatest natural ability? I think what I'm good at is understanding people and thinking about how to bring teams together in pursuit of important projects. I think that's what I'm good at is understanding the what's required to get real estate in the end is about people. And, you know, it's, closing a financial transaction or getting a permit completed or completing a contract to purchase a property. It's all about people on the other side. So I think what I'm good at is understanding what motivates people, thinking about things from their perspective and getting things done as a result of that. I put that same question to two different people who, who, who known you for a very long time (laughs) and they clearly, they clearly agree with you. This is, this is what one of them, one of them said in their own words, Tom can bring people together. He has this ability to make you feel like you are the only person in the room and your issue is the most important he's thinking about. And he can do that with a different group of people in different settings. Could be a developer, city official, a neighborhood leader. He's always able to help them see where the areas they overlap. That's nice. I hope. I, I You know, I don't want to be perceived as trying to be um, a chameleon at all. Cause I, you know, I, we have a core set of values here in that we care deeply about equity and people and getting things done in a way that works for neighborhoods. But I think I, I do believe fundamentally that Boston needs to advance from a development perspective. We need to be creating new buildings, new housing all the time in order to, um, you know, advance the city in terms of jobs and opportunities for people. So hopefully that's, how these things are seen. If that's your greatest natural strength, what's the skill you've had to work hardest on? I'd say, you know, the the thing I have to work hardest on is, is just being sure that I keep a good solid list of things and that I get things done, you know, on a timely basis. My my list ends up tends to be long and there are things that, that drop down. And so making sure that I keep track of everything and do a good job of delivering on on all of it. No, not just the things that are the flashing red lights that require immediate attention, but all of it. Okay. Last question. 
of what is you know what has been one of my most favorite episodes so thank you very much for this <laughs> does what drove you in the earliest days does it still drive you today yes absolutely yeah i think you know i um there's a competitive sense in me all the time and uh and so i i still am driven quite a bit by that sense of i i can do more of this and we can do more of this I believe deeply in the city. I love the city. I'm, you know, I'm looking out on a view right now that includes the steeple of Old North Church in the North End, which is just this amazing history of Boston. I love this city. I care deeply about it. I, I, I love being involved in a really active set of discussions about what the future of this city should be and how we should move toward that future and how we get there. So, yeah, it's the same things that drove me. I left out two pieces, by the way, which are important. One is we Ended up adopting a fifth child, by the way, Duretti, uh, after Marisol died. Took us a while to get our feet underneath us. And my wife um, looked at me in 2012 and said, um, we should adopt a fifth child. And I, after I picked myself up up off the floor, we went to Ethiopia. And uh, and Duretti is now 15 years old and an amazing, amazing kid. Um, and uh, so, we, you know, that's how we brought home our fifth child. And I, I'm also left out my mom and dad, my mother and father who was still alive, 1989. Uh, I'm sorry, 98. they're both 89. Sorry. They're both 89 years old. They really instilled in my brothers and I, a, a sense of faith, a sense of being invested in our community and uh, trying to do what's important in terms of leading a community forward and, you know, trying to be a good person. So uh, I really, I'm, I'm remiss in not mentioning my mom and dad. Well, listen, so on that note, I've got I've got to wrap things up, mate. But thank thank you so much. I have no doubt anyone who um, has got the good fortune to sit back and listen to this, oh, they'll be bored. They'll be bored, they'll be, won't they? Nick? They'll be so, they will be blown away. So, listen, thank you very much again. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much. This is fun. Thanks so much. <laughs>